I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Martin Arnold, our banking editor, and Laura Noonan, our investment banking correspondent. Down the line from Hong Kong, we have Don Wineland, our Asia financial correspondent. And our guest this week is uh, Fred Cannon from KBW. We also have an interview provided by Ben McClanahan, our U.S. banking editor, who's been talking to Richard Hunt, the head of the U.S. Consumer Bankers Association. This week, we'll be discussing the U.S. tax ructions and their effect on banks across the world, the latest evidence of distress in the Chinese shadow banking market, And finally, that interview with Richard Hunt of the U.S. Consumer Bankers Association. First, though, to the U.S. tax situation. And, Laura, um, we've had a string of announcements from banks across the world, haven't we, over the past few weeks, uh, following uh, Donald Trump's passing of this very attractive tax legislation on the face of it. It's lowering the U.S. tax rate. Um, But we've had some kind of warnings of negative outlook from a few banks. Yeah, so one of the ironies is that back when Donald Trump was elected, the share prices of all the major banks, they all soared because one of the things he was elected on was the idea he was going to reform corporate tax, make the US corporate tax lower, and that was going to help banks. Now what's happened is he's come in, he's actually gone and done that. He's cut the federal tax rate from 35% to 21%. And the banks have now, several of them have announced very large multi-billion, in Citigroup's case, $20 billion of write-downs to their deferred tax assets as a consequence of this policy. So how that works is when banks make big losses, they take a deferred tax asset and that means they can use that asset to offset against the tax bill in the future. Now the lower the tax rate in the future, the less that those deferred tax assets are actually worth. However, you have to bear in mind that these deferred tax assets are worth less in the context of lower tax bills going forward and lower tax bills going forward are surely a good thing. In their statement, Credit Suisse, which took one of the bigger European hits, are taking a $2.3 billion write down in Q4. They also said that they expected positive economic impact from these tax measures, which they think will ultimately benefit the banks. So they say that they expect their investment banking business advisory and underwriting in particular to do well because corporate America generally, I think, has welcomed these tax measures and is expecting to be more active. Now, there is a sting in the tail, and that is that there are some changes to how um, international companies and international banks can repatriate profits within their own groups and that is going to cost banks more so that is the kind of painful part for them as well and that's the kind of added thing is that especially the non-US banks with large operations in the US the likes of Credit Suisse, HSBC do have to factor in as well. Okay so on that front it's a mixed picture basically long term uh, better tax regime uh, but short term hit because any bank that's sitting on accumulated losses is going to basically have the value of those losses for tax purposes reduced. So, yeah, that wrinkle is interesting, Martin. It particularly hits foreign banks through these so-called intermediate holding company structures, right? That's that's right, Patrick. Um, the sting in the tail for foreign banks with sizable 
US operations is that uh, the tax reforms, um, part of the tax reforms include something called the Base Erosion and Anti-Abuse Tax, um, which has been known as BEAT uh, for for short. And this is designed to uh, stop companies um, shifting uh, their profits um, and their tax burden out of the US by in, in, through internal uh, interest payments on internal debt. Um, but an unintended consequence of that is it's going to hit the biggest international banks that have large US operations because they are all being forced to do effectively that. They're being forced to have large parts of this so-called TLAC, bail-inable uh, debt that um, they're, they're having to issue from their parent companies in Europe or elsewhere to their US uh, intermediate holding companies, uh, which will then pay interest back to the parent. Uh, and so there, there's a risk that that could be caught by this beat uh, measure and they could have to pay a one-time levy on those uh, interest payments. And that's pretty punitive and could uh, dilute the beneficial impact uh, for those international banks and mean that they don't get the, the big uplift from the uh, lower US federal corporate taxes. However, some of the the big European banks have come out publicly and said that it's not clear yet exactly whether you know the implications of BEAT are for their intermediate holding company intercompany transfers, and they're all looking at this very closely and hoping to find a way to escape this. It, having lobbied very hard to get a clear exemption in the rules, which they failed to do, they are now hoping that in the implementation of the rules, they'll still be able to find a way of structuring themselves to avoid it. They seem to have two hopes, as far as I can gather. One is that they might be able to come up with some whiz-bang structures that kind of <laughs> avoid it, or else they can persuade the regulator the, to, to implement the rules slightly differently. But as you say, it's a, it's a big potential hit. One, one bank I spoke to said it would actually wipe out the whole benefit of the tax uh, cuts. Yeah, and we're talking about pretty big gains here, Patrick. Um, analysts in the US have estimated that the largest uh, big American banks could enjoy uh, increase in their earnings of 15 to 20 percent uh, because of the lower federal corporate taxes. Those do sound like they're very big hits if you think about Citibank, a $20 billion fourth quarter hit. However, we should say those are only accounting charges. They have no impact on cash and they have only a minimal capital impact. So they're not real pain for the banks. Let's now go to Fred Cannon, our guest from KBW, for a, for a quick uh, summary from a, a kind of analyst investor's viewpoint uh, of, of how he interprets these, uh, these impacts. So, Fred, thanks very much for joining us. Um, so the perception here is kind of cautiously negative, I suppose, in the sense of, you know, there's a lot of downsides to, to um, be wary of, especially for international banks. But um, is that the right read to take or or is this actually fundamentally a very good news story for for the world's banks uh, and particularly uh for for american ones well thanks patrick i would certainly say it's a good news story overall for the u.s banks they're seeing their um, corporate tax rates come down significantly uh our big that is the u.s big uh, big banks get the benefit of territorial taxation uh, which uh, will be a benefit. And the while well, the DTA issue, which was raised earlier, certainly is an issue in some one-time write-offs, a couple things are important to take into account. Number one is that you know a lot of the DTAs have already been uh, discounted out of regulatory capital. So the regulatory hit isn't as big as the announced hit, uh, regulatory capital hit, that is. And then secondly, 
look, you know, they're going to be paying a lower, much lower tax rate over a long period of time, and that's net-net on any kind of uh, discounted cash flow analysis is a, is a net benefit to these big banks. Yeah, and so uh, I'm sure you've kind of looked across the spectrum at who the biggest winners and losers are, or relative losers on this are. Um, what would you be recommending as the best buys as a result of this uh, this tax break? Well, we do see the largest banks in the U.S., uh, global, globally systemically important ones, you know, seeing their um, tax rates go overall. We estimate them coming down uh, to 21% from 31.4%. You know, going forward, that's a big benefit um, across the board for those. And and we had, um, you know, we're still about 12% above consensus estimates for this year. We also don't think there's going to be a lot of competed away issue on the tax um, uh, taxes from a on, on these largest banks because, to be honest, they kind of operate almost as oligopolies here in the United States. So the price, they still have a lot of pricing power. So we see them as a big benefit. Um, <clears throat> we also see some of the smaller banks. We saw a big uh, decline in some of the small banks' um, tax rates from 32% to 21% as a result of this um, this new law. Yeah, so um, if anything, I guess um, the relative winners um, uh, are U.S. banks over international banks, which I guess is a yet another uh, reason why the gulf will widen between those international players and domestic players. On the world. We think so, actually. I would, I would have to agree with that, Patrick. I think this is a net benefit to the U.S. banks versus their, uh, their global competitors. Very good. Uh, Fred Cannon from KBW, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on, Patrick. So let's now go for our second item to uh, Asia, and we're joined by uh, we're joined by Don Wineland in Hong Kong. Don, welcome. You've been looking at Hi, the Patrick. the normally impenetrable world of Chinese shadow banking. Um, you've been trying to penetrate it, uh, and have seen some signs of concern or some fresh signs for concern. What, what exactly is going on? Yeah, um, so the latest regulatory move that we've been following is the Chinese banking regulators attempt to crack down on the entrusted loans market. So the entrusted loans market in China is really interesting. Um, it's it's one of the major components of, of shadow banking in China, so off-balance sheet bank lending, usually. Um, you know, over the past couple of years, we've seen major Chinese companies, a lot of state-owned companies um, that have been, you know, some of them have been unprofitable in their, their normal lines of business, but they have pushed into basically using cash on their, on their balance sheet or even taking, even, even taking low-interest bank loans and then re-lending them to other companies. So that's basically the, the ins and outs of, of the entrusted loan market. <clears throat> um, within that, that market banks have have played a huge role either lending or often guaranteeing some of the loans that they give to companies that then go on to to uh, be lent out to other other companies um, what the regulator is doing now is it's trying to, to stop banks from from making lots of money off of this market it's it's um, basically stopping banks from from taking a, a uh, an active role in arranging many of these loans, um, so that will that will crack down on on the the types of fees that banks can charge for for helping this kind of of business uh, proliferate. So you know it's it's um, it's it's part of a much broader crackdown on on the Chinese shadow banking market. 
But just to be clear, Don, this this is a massive market, isn't it? Entrusted loans, I think um, I was reading in one of your pieces, accounts for a, for a large percentage of the total loan book um, that banks are involved with. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's a 13.8 trillion renminbi market. So it's it's enormous. Um, it's growing still. It grew by um, 4.5% um, in the first half of 2017. So it's as far as we know, it's it's continuing to grow, and and really that's why the you know the regulators are, are cracking down on this. I mean, <clears throat> um, the the market itself has uh, you know has utility for for um, lots of companies in, in the Chinese uh, market. I mean, it's difficult for private sector market companies to get loans, and this has has served as a channel for those companies to to get loans when when they can't access those loans from from banks. But at the same time, you know, the, the, the entrusted loan market doesn't have the same kind of um, risk controls that you would you would see in a, at, at a normal bank. So therefore, that's kind of, I guess, a double-edged sword. You know, you have these, these loans acting as an important channel for access to credit for companies. But at the same time, it's in many ways, you know, entrusted loans and the other aspects of shadow banking have kind of ran, ran wild in China. And, you know, yeah, it does continue to grow, and they are a significant part of the total banking sector in China. And a final word, if these loans start to turn sour en masse, um, where, could the, where could trouble manifest? Well, I think, so banks have done a lot of guaranteeing on, on these loans as a, you know, another way to, to bring in revenue. So you, could, you, you, you might see some... some uh, ripple effects through the banking sector itself. But, um, you know, I mean, mainly I think this would hit, uh, you know, the, the companies that have pushed into this. So, you know, just to give you a sense of some of the companies that have become massive players in this, um, uh, Chalco, which is China's largest um, aluminum producer, uh, became a, a huge player in this market in, in 2015. Uh, other companies like Ball Steel, you know, one of the biggest steel producers in China, um, China Shenhua, which is, I think, the world's largest uh, coal miner, um, you know, they, they become big players as their their business, you know, their traditional lines of business have, have, have uh, become harder to, uh, to, to operate. So, I mean, yeah, I think you could see lots of these companies, you know, if, if loans did go sour, you could see big state companies uh, having trouble. Uh, thanks for that, Don. I'm glad you're keeping an eye on it. Uh, it sounds like um, certainly one to watch. Thanks for joining us. Great. Thanks. Well, finally, let's go to the US, uh, where Richard Hunt, the head of the Consumer Bankers Association, has been talking to Ben McClanahan, our US banking editor, uh, about all things consumer finance. So, Richard Hunt, thanks very much for joining me. Uh, let's begin with um, what many see as the real breakthrough uh, with respect to consumer banking in the, U- in, the, in the U.S., and that's the sort of regime change at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which uh, I'll remind listeners uh, was set up uh, by the Dodd-Frank Act as a means to protect uh, the ordinary consumer uh, from what the Democrats saw as sort of aggressive, predatory behavior uh, by the big banks. And since Donald Trump has come in, uh, everything's changed. I I assume it's for the bank's advantage. Well, look, we in the banking industry want to have a reasonable and proportionate Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. There's nothing more important to the banking industry to have the trust of our customer. So we're trying to realign the CFPB to bring in more balance. The current structure 
of the CPB is that of a single director that has all rule writing over every single bank, has enforcement powers over every bank, and has examination power over every bank. There's more powers bestowed upon the, the director of the CPB than all other agency heads combined. We are pushing for a commission of the CFPB, a five-person, bipartisan, Senate-confirmed leadership structure, just like every other agency is in the United States. Right. So how would the outcomes be better uh, for the consumer if if such a structure were to be imposed? Well, let's imagine this, Ben. Uh, Barack Obama appointed Richard Cordray, confirmed by the Senate. The pendulum swung all the way to the left. Possibly under President Trump, the pendulum will swing all the way to the right. Under a commission-type structure, the pendulum does not swing. Hopefully, it would stay in the middle. Sheila Baer, formerly of the FDIC, chair of the FDIC, said, if you want to have certainty and stability in the marketplace, you create a commission so the pendulum doesn't swing left to right. We just spent millions of dollars, tens of millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars, complying with all things CFPB. And Ben, I will tell you, in many instances, we should have spent that type of money. But now we're going to be spending hundreds of million dollars complying with a new director. We don't want to do this again in five years. That's why we want to have stability and certainty in the middle. So over the past few years, when you've had this uh, single director, you, you, I think you've likened into a dictator. At least that's one of the talking the points. So. It is a dictator, yes. Okay, so wh- wh- where did um, Mr. Cordray really overstep uh, whatever boundaries he, he had? Yeah, there were several instances, uh, you know, from examination of our banks, sometimes ruling with an iron fist, to disparate impact of auto lending, where they use statistical analysis. Yeah, well, instead of writing a rule, he came out with guidance and enforcement action, enforcement action more than anything else, saying dealerships were wrong instead of writing a rule. And he applied that to a couple of banks, but not every bank. He did that through enforcement action. Would a rule have been better? Yes. Would it have taken it longer? Yes. But it's better than just singling out four or five institutions and penalizing them, but not telling everybody else, what is the speed on the interstate? You had to come up with what is the speed on an interstate, if you will, Ben. Uh, so that's one of the problems we had with the CFPB. Also, I think Richard Cordray at times purposely demonized banks through the complaint portal system. Dodd-Frank said you have to have a complaint portal system for customers to go to an agency if they had a wrongdoing from an alleged wrongdoing from a bank. But to put that out in the public space was wrong unless you verify that information. Ben, I could go to your Financial Times website and said, you're a horrible reporter. And that would count against you, even though I had no basis for that. Right. But of course, I would have a right to reply in, in the comments underneath whatever this person had said. Sure, but by that time, under what the CFPB did, they would tell everybody Bank X had 2,000 complaints, but not verify them. So w- without context, it was unnecessarily punitive. It was. Okay, so, so can you just briefly sketch um, the direction you'd like to see um, with this new structure, uh, the CFPB taking? Well, I hope cooler heads prevail. In the United States Senate, you need 60 votes to cut off debate and to pass the legislation. Right now, there are 52 Republicans and 48 Democrats. I know, Ben, without any question, there are eight pro-business, commonsensical Democrats in the United States Senate who want to support the rest of the Republican contingency and have a type of commission. Unfortunately, politics is getting in the way. People are up for, re- for re-election in 2018, 
And for the first time I have seen in my lifetime, been in Washington since 94, members of Congress are more concerned about their primary election than their general election. They were more worried about their base. So if they try to make any changes to the CFPB, the leftist side will get mad at them and could take them on in a primary. I am hoping the adults uh, will win out at the end of the day because we do not want to be back in this position five years from now when the Trump appointed and Senate confirmed director of the CFPB then exits and the pendulum will swing left to right, right to left again. Right. Let's move on to other agencies. Um, since um, the change of regime uh, last November, well, effective, I suppose, in January, uh, there's been a succession of changes. The OCC, uh, there's a new guy there. At the FDIC, there's a new uh, nominee there. And uh, at the Fed, of course, uh, there's, a, there's a new governor nominee. And uh, Randy Quarles is the sort of the new, new Dan Turullo, who was the nemesis of the big banks uh, since the crisis. So with this new suite of uh, faces uh, at the top of agencies, you must be feeling better about life, right? Well, there's a new transformation. A transformation of Washington, D.C. is definitely taking place. We're now seeing people who actually have created jobs, who've had to make payroll, who did not work in the government all their lives, come to Washington, D.C. to try and make the system work better. We're not trying to repeal Dodd-Frank. We're not trying to get rid of the CFPB. We're trying to bring in good, commonsensical, balanced regulation for both consumers and and, and the banks as well. No one wants to go back to pre-2008. I think the banking system is more sound than its history, than ever in its history. Much better capitalized, much better leveraged across the board. Nobody wants to go back to that mortgage crisis. Remember, the mortgage crisis caused 95% of what happened during during the recession. Not all these other items that the CPB or other people are trying to do. I am a big fan of the stress test. Uh, I think it could be more transparent but by far, it has worked quite well for the United States. What are you asking for in, in terms of reducing the, the opacity of this thing? Well, first off, not every bank should be uh, subject to a stress test, maybe just the larger banks. Uh, but what I don't like, Ben, is the CIFI designation by an arbitrary number. It certainly should be about the activities of a bank. Systemically important financial institution. That's correct. I can name you a larger bank that is less statistically, uh, systemically important than a smaller bank. Somebody just made up a number of $250 billion and said every bank above that has to have certain different requirements than a bank between 100 and 250. Where I can tell you there could be a bank of $50 billion whose activities warrant more oversight than a larger bank. Okay. So somebody like um, U.S. Bank Corp., for example, Capital One, um, above that 250 threshold, are, are they feeling a bit sorry for themselves right now? Look, uh, they know how to operate. We are in this game, and those are the rules that are set, and you do the best you can for your consumer and move on. Uh, Do I believe it has hurt people from buying homes that are on the fringe? Yes, I do. It has hurt credit accessibility, uh, but that's why we have 4,900 banks diminishing every day, uh, unfortunately. Uh, But I think we have enough banks to serve everyone in this country. Yeah, let's talk about consolidation because uh, it's, it's been a, since I've been in the U.S. for about two and a half years now, uh, M&A bankers have, have told me just about every week uh, that there's a huge wave of consolidation about to happen, and it hasn't happened yet, uh, certainly not about the sort of size threshold that we, we care about. Is, is this new regulatory regime going to look more kindly towards big combinations of you know, $100 billion banks? Well, I think it has been uh, seismic, in my opinion. At one time, this country had 15,000 banks in the late 80s, early 90s. We're now down to 4,000, 
900 banks. You're seeing more and more community banks having to consolidate. We just had another one in Louisiana this past week. And you're going to see more of that. Think about the three major reasons banks are consolidating today. Nine years of a low interest rate environment. Uh, Yield spreads are at the smallest level uh, probably in the last 50 years. Dodd-Frank compliance is the second item. And then third, which I think is actually the greatest uh, factor of all the three, has to do with technology. Every bank has to invest in technology. Think about what you do every day now. Amazon, Uber, all technological advancements. If a bank does not get into the 21st century, they're not going to make it either. A person born today can have the same telephone number and same bank from birth to death because of all the technological advances. Think about this, Ben. Really taking a picture of a check and having that as a deposit? Being able to go to an ATM and deposit cash? Those were not even imaginable 10 years ago, yet it happens every day. And while we're on tech, what do you think about Bitcoin? Well, it's at 14000 I will tell you, I bought it when it was $250, so I like that return. Uh, but once the Fed came out eight years ago and said they would regulate Bitcoin, I thought that would hamper its effectiveness in usage in the United States. And I still believe that today. Now, some countries use it quite a bit. I just don't see it as promising in the United States, especially if the Fed is going to be involved in it. And still on fintech, I remember talking in the past to you about uh, Lending Club and, and uh, other uh, fintech online lenders uh, seeking to challenge uh, the big incumbents like City and Chase and Bank of America. I think you were skeptical back then. Has that skepticism been justified by what's happened since then to these, these companies? Yes. I think banks are now the disruptors. We talked about Chase's investment uh, into technology. You're seeing many more Silicon Valley technology companies going under. You've seen significant changes at SoFi. Uh, I, there's no question. Uh, look, at Money 2020, uh, we had a couple of bankers at Money 2020 in Las Vegas. This is the big fintech conference. And, right. And five years ago, banks were running to the fintech companies to be part of them. Now it's the reverse. The fintech companies are running to the bank to be part of the bank, to partner with them because they want to get customer data and they need deposits. So I think you saw a complete reversal from five, six years ago to today. Okay. Richard Hunt, thanks very much for joining me. Ben, thank you. Appreciate it. Well, that's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Martin and Laura here in the studio, Don in Hong Kong, uh, our guest from KBW, uh, Fred Cannon, and also Richard Hunt and Ben McClanahan in the U.S., Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by David Blood and Amy Keane. Until next week, goodbye.